episode 19 of the Just for a Closer Walk podcast. I'm Joel Osland, and as always, I'm privileged to have you along for this exciting journey. Last episode, we wrapped up the what's classically known as the Dark Days of Israel's history, which is known as the Days of the Judges. And we went through the whole list of what I'm going to re, uh, reiterate as the, the classic list of the solo judges. And so, of course, that uh, wraps up with Samson being the last kind of standard classic solo judge. And the reason I express it that way is because Eli the priest was actually uh, a judge after Samson. And so he judged Israel for 40 years. And then also uh, Samuel the prophet, who also served under the priest, uh, also served as a judge in Israel. So it's, uh, those were the, the couple of exceptions there at the end of the, uh, the season or the era, the age of the judges in Israel's history. And as dark of the days as those were, um, I love the ray of light that we see in the book of Ruth. And even just the way that the, the book starts off, it sets the stage and it just lets us know that it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land, and that's, and that's kind of where the story of the book of Ruth begins. So we know that it sets the stage in these dark days. But it gives us a little bit of a, of a hopeful story. It's like a light that shines through the darkness in these, these dark, dismal days of Israel's rebellion and, uh, and trying to stumble their way through the darkness uh, to find the light. And we do see some uh, a ray here that kind of cuts through the darkness and it's and offers some encouragement and i just love uh, the overview that the events recorded in the book of ruth even though they take place during the dark years of the judges this book offers encouragement and hope to those who decide to follow god it's a story of love and dedication that revolves around three people who determine in their hearts to walk in integrity clinging to their god and his precepts Three people who know who their king is and want to do what is right in his eyes. And I won't spend too much time on the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a very familiar story to, uh, to many of us in the church. Uh, but a few high points. Um, the, the whole book starts off, and it's a relatively short book. I think it's four chapters. So it starts off with a man named Elimelech, who is married to a woman named Naomi. And they had two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they both had married Moabite wives. And so there was Orpah and there was Ruth. Well, through a series of, of really just tragic events, uh, Elimelech and both of the sons, Malon and Chilion, all three of them died. And so what we see here is a, a trio of widows. So we've got Naomi who's the mother-in-law, and then we've got Orpah and Ruth, who were the daughters-in-law, but bearing in mind that they were both Moabite in their origin and in their, in their nationality. So for them, uh, if, if they were Israelite women, there would be a little bit of a decent chance that they might be able to get remarried, they might be able to find a, a good life in Israel. But considering them being of essentially a foreign descent, uh, for them, the chances were just really not very high. And so Naomi recognizes this and says, after their, their mourning period, she basically says, look, 
I'm not going to hold anything against you. I think you've acted honorably. I would, I, I just recommend go ahead back to your parents' household and, and the Lord be with you. You know, I hope it works out for you. And, you know, at first they're both really reluctant and they say, no, we're going to stick here with you. You are our new family. And, uh, and, and she says, no, it's, I appreciate your loyalty, but I, it's really going to be better for you if you go back home. You'll, you'll at least have a shot at a, at a good life. And so they all cry a bit, and, and Orpah finally does take up the offer and says, okay, I'm going to go back to my family. And Ruth, though, just kind of digs in her heels and says, you know what? No, I'm committed. I know that you're in a bad spot. You're in a bind being a widow yourself, and I'm committing myself to you uh, as my family. And where you go, I'll go. Where, where, where you live, I'll live. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so it's just this beautiful illustration, this example of loyalty and faithfulness. And it's, it, it's mind-boggling to see that coming from a non-Israelite, the people that were, the Israelites being the people that were supposed to have the most direct revelation and understanding of God's voice and God's will, uh, that they weren't necessarily where we were seeing the shining beacons of light and positive examples, but we do see it come from this widowed Moabite woman named Ruth. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Skipping over, doing a really uh, a quick run through on it, um, they end up moving into town and find out that a distant relative uh, named Boaz, who is actually pretty well off, a wealthy landowner, um, they end up kind of having a little bit of a romantic uh, discovery. Boaz sees Ruth, and Ruth sees Boaz, and they're, you know, and the, the violins start playing, and the every song on the radio starts to make sense. <laughs> to borrow uh, from Craig Groeschel, he always talks about songs on the radio starting to make sense when you're in love. And, uh, and so they go through this ordeal, and Naomi kind of catches on to it. She says, hey, I'm going to help you guys figure this out. And work it out. And so there's a lot of moving parts in the story, but what I do love is uh, that Boaz, he goes through the proper channels. He says, look, I I would love to, to take Ruth home. I would love to marry her, and I would love to provide for her. But I also acknowledge that I'm not the closest living relative, so I don't have first... Uh, it's not my responsibility primarily, unless nobody else wants to step in and take on that responsibility. So he goes through the whole process. He, he allows, he opens it up to the whole town and everybody says, nope, we appreciate what you're doing. We love your demonstration of integrity, of wanting to do this the right way and, and go for it. And, you know, so the story ends up really, really positively. And what we see is the result of it is Ruth, this Moabite woman, who's really just known for being very faithful and very loyal uh, to her new family and to her commitments. And Boaz, you know, and his integrity, as a result of these things, both of them uh, wind up in what becomes recognized later as the royal lineage. So Boaz and Ruth uh, did have a son named Obed, who also had a son named Jesse, who had several sons, and one of them, of course, was David. And David being known as probably the greatest king in Israel's history, or at least the one that was the man after God's own heart. And it's, uh, for those of us that have read the scriptures, of course, we know that David's uh, lineage was also, many, 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 many generations later, is what was the line 
that uh, that Jesus came from as well. So both Joseph and Mary, both of their uh, lineages, ran through the lineage of David. So there you go. So Ruth the Moabitess and Boaz, the man of integrity, uh, were included in the royal lineage, even the lineage of the Messiah. So we get that fantastic, uh, fantastic story. And, and we also get to jump into uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel, which is really where we see the next, I would say, kind of the next major era of Israel's history. So we've moved from, of course, the Exodus. We've gone through the, the wilderness wanderings. We've gone through the conquest narrative. We've gone through the dark days of the judges while they're in the land. And, and we are working our way towards the era of the kings. And so there's a little bit of time in between the, the era of the judges and the era of the kings. And that's kind of the, the area we're just going to zone in on here for a few minutes in this episode. So the book of 1 Samuel begins with a woman named Hannah. <laughs> well, I'm going to read just a little, uh, little overview here that's kind of helpful um, to set the stage. And then we'll jump in a little bit into Hannah's story and then uh, diving in a little bit more to Samuel himself. So uh, in recap, the days of the judges were dark until God raised up Samuel as a prophet and a priest and a judge. Samuel was committed to doing what was right in God's eyes. Unfortunately, the people still weren't satisfied. They cried, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And with that plea, they rejected the Lord as their king. And so even as we look ahead and we, we get to start with some high notes, with some positivity, we know that Israel's history was sadly a, a recurring theme of repentance and glory, but then cycling into rebellion and idolatry. And that's unfortunately just the trend that would continue throughout their whole history. So even here we get to see some of the light and, uh, and then we also see the darkness because that was what became their trend was, was this cycle, these ups and these downs. Or if you're a fan of the, uh, of the pop song, they were hot, they were cold, they were yes, they were no, and so forth. I'm not going to sing it for you right now, sorry. You'll have to go on and play that song on the radio if you like it. <laughs> so Hannah... Um, she actually was a, uh, one of the wives of a man with a very fancy name, Elkanah. <laughs> Tried to say that five times fast. And uh, unfortunately, Hannah was barren. She wasn't able to have any children. And it was a sense of animosity between her and of the other wife, uh, Penina. That's how we're going to go ahead and say that's pronounced. Um, and unfortunately, Hannah, her heart was right. She wanted to, she wanted to honor God. She really did. And uh, in, in their culture and in those days, to be able to bear children and to be able to raise up a son specifically uh, was one of the greatest ways for someone like Hannah to feel vindication or validation and, uh, and to provide a value, a lasting value, a heritage to, uh, to the family name. And so for her to not be able to bear children was, was really, really tough. And so she does. She goes uh, to, uh, when they're at the house of the Lord doing their, um, their uh, offerings, 
And, uh, and she's in there and she's praying and she's kind of secretly off saying, Lord, if you would just give me a son, I would even commit him into your service here to serve underneath the priest who's Eli at the time. And lo and behold, God answers her prayer and she ends up bearing uh, the son Samuel. And so when he's old enough, she does uh, place him in the care of Eli. And it is a, a, just a beautiful dedication and therefore, Samuel is raised and uh, grows in, under the service or in service under the tutelage of Eli the priest. So that's kind of how the story begins. And there were, unfortunately, a couple of unsavory characters that enter into the story. And what's even more unfortunate is that they happen to be Eli's own sons. So he had his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, which you would think would be good names for very priestly people. But what's very sad is we get a description in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, down in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. And just let that kind of sink in. The sons of the priest did not know the Lord. My goodness. And we know that it's possible for somebody to go through the motions, to be even exposed to the truth, to be in service, in ministry of the house of the Lord, of the gospel, uh, but that they could do all of these things without ever actually knowing or having a personal relationship with the Lord, which is very sad. And just a few other verses here, it just kind of summarizes that not only did they not know the Lord, but they were actually very, very... Uh, wicked, and they were just known as doing great wickedness before the Lord. So sleeping with uh, women when they came to offer their sacrifices, um, going out and and just really, really producing a very, very bad testimony of what it looks like to serve in the house of the Lord. Um, so Eli does confront his sons on a number of occasions. He says, look, the report I'm hearing about you is not good. It's circulating all around the people. Everybody knows. Um, he says, look, if you sin against another person, I mean, that's one thing. But if you, you right now, you're sinning against God. So who could mediate or intercede for you? But the sad thing is that they just harden their hearts. Down in verse 25, it says they would not listen to the voice of their father. They would not listen to the voice of their father. They responded to the truth by trying to ignore it, by trying to deflect it, by even trying to be combative against it. So that's the, that's the darkness. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men, which you might recognize that phrasing from Luke chapter 2 when the same thing is said about Jesus in his formative years. There you go. Kind of a fun tie-in, a fun, uh, fun connection. All right, so we've set the stage. We see that uh, Eli's sons are very, very wicked. We see that the people are still kind of in this, uh, this era of darkness, the dark days of the judges. And they are very, very hit or miss about um, their uh, repentance, about whether they are uh, going to be honorable and going to be faithful to serving God, or if they are going to be worshiping all of the idols of all the lands around them. So in this particular season, they were definitely very much, uh, the Israelites were very much still worshiping Baal and Asherah 
and all of the Canaanite gods and all of the idols of the land around. So they were just completely being unfaithful to the Lord. So that's, that's still the stage. That's still the tone for where we are. And so what's interesting is after, uh, after hearing all of this, this context and hearing about Hophni and Phinehas, we do down at the bottom of chapter two, we get this, this encouragement. And this is basically God speaking through one of his messengers to Eli the priest about Samuel. And he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. He says, I'm going to do it regardless of your intervention, which I hope you still do intervene and, and encourage your sons to, to repent and to come back to uh, being faithful ministers and, and faithful worshipers. He says, but regardless of if it's that way or if it's another way, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what is according, according to what is in my heart and in my soul. So that might remind you a little bit of the, uh, the general thought or uh, theme when, uh, when God was interacting with Moses through Moses to Pharaoh back in the Exodus narrative and saying, look, Pharaoh, you can choose to work with us or you can try to work against me. Ultimately, this is what's going to happen. I will be magnified. I will be glorified. And my people will be coming out of your land one way or another. And so you see there's almost this like, there's this resolve. There's this God's will is going to happen. We have the option. We have the ability that we can choose to, to put ourselves in his corner and to be on his side. Or we can choose to find ourselves opposed to him, which is never what I would recommend. That's, that's your profound takeaway for the day. <laughs> Super profound. Try not to be opposed to God. Uh, very, very significant. So in all of this, this, uh, this era, this is where we get the, the really, really cool passage uh, about Samuel while he's a, a pretty young fellow. Uh, says he was still basically a boy at the time. And I love how chapter 3 starts out. It says that in those days, word from the Lord was rare and visions were infrequent. And so what happens is basically God calls out to Samuel. And this is when, uh, when Samuel was lying down in the temple in the same area where the ark was. And he calls out to Samuel and, and Samuel responds, here, so here I am. And so he goes to Eli and he says, here I am. You called me. And Eli, of course, was asleep and he wakes up. He's like, what are you talking about? I didn't call you. No, go to sleep. And Oh, okay. He goes back to sleep and then God calls him again. And he, oh yeah, here I am. Come, you know, you called me. Eli's, no, I didn't. And it was, you know, and then it happens a third time. And finally, after the third time, Eli kind of gets the clue. He says, ah, okay. I figure out what's going on. This is the Lord is calling you. So he says to Samuel, he says, go, go back to sleep. If, if they call you again, just go ahead and respond and say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And so Samuel does go back, uh, he goes back to lay down, and, and that's when he hears the Lord's voice again, and he, and he responds. And this is, I hope, the way that we would each respond whenever the Lord calls. And he says, speak, for your servant is listening. And as we know through the rest of the passages, uh, that the Lord does speak, and that he winds up using Samuel to be quite the messenger and quite the uh, 
the judge and quite the prophet and quite the priest over Israel and maybe one of the most famous prophets in all of Israel's history, which is pretty significant. Um, so he does. And so we jump down and we hear, uh, it was at verse um, 19 and 20, that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words ever fail. And all of Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that, God, that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. How cool is that? Man, to have a... Uh, to have your reputation like that is something significant. And I was going to go a little bit further in uh, in 1 Samuel, and uh, but basically this next passage is so fantastic. Well, there's a sad part, but then there's a, a fantastic part after it. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to actually read a lot of the text here through because I think the text states it better than it could be paraphrased. Uh, so we'll set the stage. Um, so this is right around the same time. This is when um, when the uh, the people were getting ready to go fight with the Philistines again, naturally. Um, and so we'll start chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer where the Philistines, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And we have to pause there, because that, I think, is a significant point that we could easily miss. Notice that the people of God, the Israelites, they did not seek the Lord, and they didn't seek the Lord's presence, but rather they sought the ark's presence. That sank in. We often talk about seek the giver and not the gifts. Well, the people of God were seeking the gifts and thinking that they had some kind of magical, miraculous power by themselves. And they didn't care about relationship with God at this point. They just cared about using some cheap magical tricks to help them defeat an enemy they didn't like. That's pretty messed up. And so what happens is they do, they go ahead and call it out, and Hophni and Phinehas come out with the, with the Ark of the Covenant, and they start rallying up a big battle cry and, and saying, yeah, now that we've got this Ark, you know, we can't possibly lose. And I love it that the, uh, that the Philistines kind of rally themselves as well, and they say, oh, we're not going to be outdone by these people just because they're really spirited and they have the Ark with them. And so you jump down to verse 10, and the Philistines fought with Israel, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. There fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, both died. Man, how would that be for a rough, rough day? And so, of course, the news gets back to Eli, and he essentially, <laughs> it doesn't say it in these words, but he basically has... A heart attack, and uh, and falls down dead. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth. For her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, "Don't be afraid, for you have given birth to a son." But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod, saying, "The glory has departed from Israel." 
because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. If you ever think about that word Ichabod, it's a question of glory. Ichabod translates to no glory. And these were the days metaphorically and very significantly where we can look back on it and say that the glory of God had departed the people because they had uh, chosen to seek everything but God's glory. How significant is that? So that sets the stage. But what I do love is even when God's people were unfaithful, a lot of the times God just has to jump on in and, and be faithful enough for everyone. He says, look, I know my people are unfaithful. I know they're not up to the task, even though it's shouldn't be too difficult. He's like, but look, I'll cover you even now. And so what happens is the Philistines, they go ahead and take the, the ark and they bring it into their uh, camp. And this is just absolutely spectacular. And this is where we'll pick up in the text and we'll read a, a good little passage here. So well, uh, this is in First uh, Samuel chapter 5. You're going to love it. This is, this is so good. Okay. So the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And really quickly, if you're not familiar, Dagon in, uh, um, in Philistine religion, Dagon was considered the father of, of Baal. So there you go. So they took the Ark of God, brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So when the Ashdodites arose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon to the Ashdod to this very day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of God must of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on, and on Dagon and our, our God. So his... The, the God of Israel is being mean to our God. <laughs> so they sat, uh, excuse me, so they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, oh, let it be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark around uh, to Gath. And, and after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So then they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the Ark of God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. Therefore they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God away to Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it will not kill us and our people. For there was deadly confusion throughout the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. You shall surely return to him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand 
is not removed from you. And they said to him, well, what shall the guilt offering be, which we shall return to him? And he, and he said, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Now let that set in. Good grief. This is the Philistines, the pagan priests and diviners, talking a whole lot more about giving glory to the God of Israel than God's own chosen people, the Israelites, did. We just read about Ichabod. Where is the glory? The glory has departed from Israel because they didn't seek God's glory. Well, here God is, is moving amongst this pagan nation, this people and their own, their own pagan priests and diviners, and they are the ones that are saying, give glory to the God of Israel. Give him a guilt offering. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had dealt severely with them? Did they not allow the people to go? And then they departed. Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Now take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put the articles of gold, which you have returned to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side and send it away that it may go. Watch if it does go up by the way of its own territory to Beth, uh, excuse me, Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. So they did so. They took the two milch cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And this is hilarious. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. And they went along the highway, lowing as they went. And sometimes you just got to wonder how uh, awesome it is that that significant detail was added in the Holy Scriptures that the cows were lowing as they went. <laughs> I think this is hilarious. Hopefully you're enjoying just going through the scriptures and letting them be spoken, uh, letting the scriptures speak to you. I think that's awesome. So they went straight along the highway, lowing as they went. Didn't want to take any of those, you know, slow country roads. Got to take the highway. And they did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and behold, they saw the ark, and they were glad to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And so I just thought that has to be one of the most hilarious series of events ever recorded in Scripture, and yet it's fantastic um, that God basically put it in the minds of these cows to go exactly where they needed to go to take the highway lowing merrily as they went, and then to stop precisely in the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And what we did actually see, we will end it on a high note for this episode, is right after this, when the, uh, the ark is returned to Israel, the people do throw a great celebration, and they, and they offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And they basically do have a big repentance. Samuel comes in and he says, look, it's time for you guys to return to the Lord with all your heart. And so they did. And so they removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served God alone. And so that's, that's the cycle. We'll end on a high note again. 
knowing that there's a whole lot more of Israel's history that's going to have its downs and, and its ups. Um, and so we'll have plenty of time to get to those as well. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, major takeaways, I would definitely uh, encourage us again to speak uh, or to respond when the Lord speaks to us, to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And to know that if we... Uh, reminds me of Jesus's words. It says, look, if my people aren't going to be faithful, even these rocks can develop a voice. The trees can cry out to give glory. So let us not require the trees and the rocks to cry out. Let us not require the pagans and their priests to be the ones that are offering glory to our God. Let us be the people that are faithful to walking faithfully with our Jesus and to giving him the glory and that we would not be a people like Ichabod, saying, where is the glory? But instead that we would be a people known as emanating the glory of God everywhere we go, where we're engaged and influential. We'll leave it there for this episode, and we'll look forward to picking it up shortly again, picking back up with good old prophet Samuel and jumping into the era of the kings. Hope you have a fantastic week. Continue to walk closer and closer with Jesus each day. Thank you.